this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is sponsored by Book Riot's Read Harder Journal, created by us. This smartly designed, if we do say so ourselves, reading log consists of entry pages to record stats, your impressions of a book, and reviews of every book you read this year. Evenly interspersed among those entry pages are 12 challenges that are inspired by Book Riot's annual Read Harder initiative. It's not connected to any particular year, though. To encourage readers to pick up passed over books, try out new genres, and choose titles from a wider range of voices and perspectives. Indulge your inner book nerd, read a book about books, get a new perspective on current events by reading a book written by an immigrant, find a hidden gem by reading a book published by an independent press, and so much more. Every challenge includes an inspiring quotation, an explanation of why the challenge will prove to be rewarding, and five book recommendations from us at Book Riot that help you fulfill the challenge. Get your copy at bookriot.com slash readharderjournal. That's bookriot.com slash readharderjournal. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 295. We're recording on Thursday, January 10th, 2019. I am Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. I want to mention real quick, um, if you haven't listened to it, if you're not inclined generally to listen to Annotated, this week is for you, Book Riot Podcast listeners. It's all about modern big box book sales, history of Barnes & Noble. Mm. Uh, Jess and Maria, who wrote to us after we talked about the new Indigo store and the Barnes & Noble concept stores, I interviewed them. You can hear them on that show. And then a long conversation with Mike Shatskin, a longtime book publishing consultant, um, was a bookseller, worked in book sales, has consulted for Barnes & Noble, a lot of book, booksellers. I say at the end in the credits, I learned more in 45 minutes talking to him than I have in about five years of reading the internet. Really interesting stuff. <laughs> about how in, I haven't... Yeah, listen to it. I did it as a solo. Yeah. It was over the break, and I didn't want to bother this, Rebecca, so it's all me. Yeah. And um, This annotated is a surprise it's, to it's me. It's interesting. You'll like it, I think. I think it's very interesting. Uh, also, one, one nugget there is I didn't realize how influential B. Dalton was, not just because they were in malls, but... <gasps> They basically. Huh. I'm stepping on a little bit of the show, but this is a, this we call a teaser. Um, they invented before there were ISBN numbers. They used their own. St- they put their own stickers on the books, so they could see what books were selling, and they knew when to reorder before they ran out of books. Um, one thing that's hard to remember now in this world where we can basically get any book we want within 48 hours in print, let alone as a digital book instantly, is that before B. Dalton did this, you wouldn't know if the bookstore you were going to had a reasonable shot of having the book you were looking for. Like the experience of buying books was to go in, place an order at the independent bookstore, and then wait for four weeks for it to show up. Before about 1970, that's what book buying was, hmm. unless you were buying a New York Times bestseller. And the predominant narrative about Barnes & Noble is they came in and they undercut independent bookstores on price, and that's why they won. That's not the story this episode tells about how Barnes & Noble became Barnes & Noble. The same reason that Barnes & Noble became dominant is the same reason they lost. That's my teaser. Uh, to Amazon. Ooh. Do you like that? All right. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm always here for some Barnes and Noble yes, I know, information, right? That's right. speculation, really thoughts. And, and when you put it in context, yes. Barnes and Noble was really a Barnes and Noble as we know it for about 10 years. It's also weird. Between like it's 95 really and 2005, that was the reign 
of uh, uh, of the of BNN as we know it. It's just so happened that for you and I, especially, that was our formative years mm-hmm. of, really of being was. book buyers. And I think a lot of people that listen to the show are in kind of the same boat of like your first big bookstore you went into was Barnes and Noble. But anyway, I had a really good, I learned a lot. And also Mike Shatskin has a book coming out. I didn't even know this until I was on the interview with him. I think he thought I was doing the interview or I approached him because of the book, but it turns out I didn't know. Um, He has a book coming out in March um, called The Book Business from Oxford University Press. That's about the history and present state of book selling writ large, which I'm looking forward to. So anyway, there's a plug for that. Uh, let's do a let's do a, speaking of plugs. Let's do our first sponsor. The <laughs> uh, Great Courses Plus is back. Look, I don't have to tell you that reading can open up a whole new world of places, ideas, people, things you didn't know, basically. And with the Great Courses Plus, you can get all that that you get out of reading plus so much more because it's an online streaming service that lets you learn about virtually anything from lectures presented by experts, experts who are not only knowledgeable but also passionate about their subjects. You and I all had, at some point, a teacher in life who knew everything there was mm-hmm. to know about a topic, but it was delivered like it was a saltine cracker um, that had been sitting out for 17 days. It just, it's just <laughs> not interesting. You don't want to eat that. It's, it's still got all the same calories in there, but you want a fresh saltine. You want a Ritz even, a canapé. Ritz with um, Velveeta on it. That's what uh, hors d'oeuvres were when I was a kid. Get, get the whole... It, has, it can taste good and be good for you, and that's what the great courses plus learn about shakespeare ancient history mysteries of human behavior photography so much more you can watch or listen wherever you are whenever you want because there's a great app you can download the lecture and listen to it like a podcast or watch it like you would listen watch a video they have a wonderful course that we've enjoyed called life lessons from the great books the fascinating exploration how the great literary masterpiece change for us all as we age How's Animal Farm different when you're a kid versus when you're an adult? Young adult, Hamlet. How's it different when you're a kid, when you're an adult? Depending on our stage in life. The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a free trial of unlimited learning. Enjoy life lessons from the great, cor- uh, excuse me, enjoy life lessons from the great books and so much more only when you sign up through thegreatcoursesplus.com slash book riot. You can get a free trial thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. There's also a link in the show notes that'll take you right to the right spot. Learn some stuff. Have a good time doing it. That's a Great Courses Plus. All right. Okay, Jeff. Well, it's hard. So, so there's two levels to this story. Um, yeah, and I was going to say, we're back in, it's the first full week of the new yeah, year. Yeah, we got one to dig into. Oh boy, here we are. Well, this is news that broke, I think, before our last show that we didn't talk about. Yeah, the, the news yeah. and this the, the the like the the catalyzing piece of news, I guess. Well, why don't you tell what happened, and then we'll talk about the the piece about what happened. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, or last week, sometime in 2019, so far, um, it was announced that Publishers Weekly has acquired the Millions. If you're not familiar, the Millions is a group literary blog, much like the one that employs both of us. Um, but it was founded in 2003 by Max. I've never known if it's McGee or Meiji. I, I, like I believe I it's McGee, but I don't know. Okay. Max McGee. Um, and was like the, 2003 was early days of Very internet early. blogosphere. And the millions has been um, sort of an establishment of literary blogging. It's one of the first literary blogs I discovered. I think it was formative to like, we're old yes. in internet years. <laughs> the, the kids that are starting to blog these days might not know it, but it was one of the literary blogs that um, that we read. It formed um, some of my understanding of literary community online. Um, it's been acquired. They had run independently 
Um, and they have been um, for a couple of years taking like reader donations um, to stay afloat, be able to pay their writers and um, do various things. It's hard out there on the internet. And they were recently acquired by Publishers Weekly. Um, so no longer independent. Um, PW, I think, is looking at it as a way the, the millions faces consumers where Publishers Weekly is an industry facing publication. So I think this is a way to get additional readers and additional advertising dollars, especially mm -hmm. from publishers to go towards that reader facing audience and it allows the millions to continue operating like this is one of the reasons that as a publication you allow your business to be acquired is to be able to continue doing what you're doing um, and they were pretty open about that it sounds like the millions is going to continue running like functioning mostly independently in terms of their editorial operations and in terms of the content that you'll see on the site if you've been a fan um, for a while and uh, you know an interesting business move mm. um Stuff like this happens in publications and media all the time. We don't see it happen in literary media um, that often. There aren't very many sites, um, I think, that would be big enough to be considered for it. And a lot of places like to stay independent. Um, mm -hmm. So that is the thing that happened. Publishers Weekly acquired the millions. Well, let's, talk, let's stop there and talk about that on its own merits, you know, as people who... This is, this is the water we swim in, right? Like, mm -hmm. we, you know, yeah. we, we exist right alongside Publishers Weekly and the millions, um, I certainly, so 2003, I was in grad school for a long time, but I started reading The Millions <laughs> while I was in grad school, but it was among the first wave of what we now recognize as book blogs that really, I don't even know that they would have been recognized then. They were just websites people ran in Mark Sarvis's Delegate and Variation, Maud mm -hmm. Newton's site, and The Millions were really the three that for a while I checked, you know, this is before I knew about an RSS reader, there were no Twitter, you had to go punch in the right. URL. Lord knows, I was thinking about this, how do you even find out about these plays in 2006? I don't even know where I was, I don't even know how I found out them, but I read them and they became part mm -hmm. of my like internet life. And yeah. um, for me, especially when I started the Reading Ape in April of 2010, very much in my mind, I didn't want to be like these sites, but they showed that it could be done. You know, as a passion project, your blog was very mm -hmm. similar. It was a passion project. It was <laughs> a hobby, using Jeff's own definition of a hobby. Um, this is something that you wouldn't <laughs> know unless you were a contributor insider Slack for the last few days. Um, you know, it, and the millions was, and I don't know. There's, I have a lot of questions about the millions. I've always had like, mm -hmm. it doesn't pay a lot of its writers for their guest pieces. They have some staff writers that are paid. I don't know how much. I don't know how many full time salaries this thing was generating. Was Max doing it full-time? It's always been a little unclear to me. So having all caveats aside, I just don't really know what the site was. But I see, it looked to me at the top like a glorified... Or a passion project became something more than a passion project, right? It mm -hmm. wasn't your or my blog. It wasn't even Mark Sarvis's Elegant Variation, which he shut down and started writing novels. Maude Newton's, who she basically shut down so she could write her own book, things like that. Mm -hmm. It became a thing of its own beyond Max's own yes. sort of goal. And so the future, and we've long wondered, I think I'll, I'll share, we've long wondered, like, how, how are they in business? What are they doing? What do they want out of the site? Because they don't mm -hmm. really take advertising. They take, you know, how much money are they making? Could they be making more? I know they don't pay a lot of their writers. They do pay some. It's all been a big question. It's 15 years in, or I guess a little more than 15 years in. And it's an interesting moment for them to be... What does it mean that they were acquired by Publishers Weekly? Did they get a big check? Was Max tired of doing it? I can only imagine that mm -hmm. he didn't want to kill the site, but he also didn't want to do it anymore, and it was a safe landing. There's, I have a whole bunch of questions about them, but I think it's interesting that 
They're going to be around still. Publishers Weekly, at the very least, is interested in continuing to run it, which is, again, even if they didn't get a dime, is not nothing, right? That, that, right, that That's something right. that Publishers Weekly wants to do, which is, um, you know, Publishers Weekly has been around for 147 years, and they haven't really ever been a reader-focused site, nor they've really, to my mind is, or knowledge, ever developed anything they thought of being reader-focused. It's all really meant for publishers or booksellers or agents, the industry itself. And The Millions isn't that. It, I think probably a lot of people that work in the industry also read The Millions, but I would guess the lion's share of Millions readers are you know dummies like us in twenty nine or 2009 who are just reading the internet yeah. and looking for stuff about people books. People on the internet who care about books, um, yeah. So I'm glad The Millions is going to still exist. Um, I, the story I would be very sad to have seen is that Mac said, you know, we just can't do it anymore. You know, a toast version. I still miss the toast. Mm-hmm. A lot of people still right. miss the toast. Um, but it's going to live on. I'll be curious to see what they do. I did notice in their about page, they already have a change. If you're interested to advertise the millions, please contact someone at mm-hmm. uh, with the Publishers mm-hmm. Weekly email address. Um, I'd imagine that they're going to have, you know, they've got some inventory there. Be curious to see what their Amazon affiliate links. You know, they, they've long done that. Are they still going to have a support the millions button where probably some of the language around that they need to change with their membership thing because Mm -hmm. then you are and you aren't and blah, blah, blah. Now, what this means for art, the universe, book blogging, the internet (laughs) and everything is a separate, but like, do you think this is, is this something or nothing, I guess, for us on its own before we read the Vulture piece about this moment? That's right. Is this a something or nothing? I'm having a hard time. I was curious to see what you thought about it. I I think it's a nothing. Um, and I don't want, I'm concerned, like I have appreciated the millions for all of my years mm-hmm. as a person on the bookish internet, but I have some critical thoughts about mm-hmm. the millions as well. And, but I wouldn't, I don't have shade mm-hmm. for the millions really. Um, I have some shade for the next thing we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> a, a whole lot of it, a lot of shade, bountiful shade, mm-hmm. huge shade, Jeff. Um, but for this, like this story, I think is kind of a nothing. Like we know, um, probably better than anyone else running an independent book site on the internet that there is money to be made in publishers buying advertising to face readers. Um, Publishers Weekly, I think, has recognized that they don't have the capacity and the kind of content to reach just the general reader who's looking for what books to pick up with my book club this week or, you know, fun bookish content. Um, So if they're interested in getting some of those ad dollars um, to hang a lantern on it in competing with us Mm -hmm. or businesses like us for publisher ad dollars that face readers, acquiring a publication that faces readers is a smart choice to make. Um, I don't think that the millions is big enough. They're my understanding of the numbers and like the sort of things you can piece yeah. together by looking at like Alexa ratings and that kind of thing. I don't think that it's big enough to really make a significant difference, but having some reader facing advertising is better than having none. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get that choice. Um, for a really long time, I have thought that um, the millions gets outsized like sort of outsized credit like outsized credit or credibility when you look at the readership that they have had um and some of the language in this next piece that we'll talk about i think reflects that like they were the og for sure Mm -hmm. um there is no doubt that though the folks who were writing for the millions in the beginning were the first generation of book bloggers um and they approached it um from a certain way that by the time when i by the time i started blogging in 2008 it was like the next generation of voices were coming up that had a different perspective on what book blogging could be and what we were looking for out of it and i don't think one is better than the other but they were they are 
different. Um, the Millions has always done a pretty particular kind of thing and has sought a pretty particular kind of reader mm -hmm. that I think has limited its ability to grow um, or has limited the like available pool of readers to it. Um, so like I, it's just part of being on the bookish internet that people talk about like that the millions is one of the like the, the flagship places. Um, and it certainly is for having been there for a long mm -hmm. time. But in terms of like sheer size, um, I think it gets a lot, it, it is thought of as like, or it, it figures larger in some people's minds than it actually is in size on the internet or in terms of readership. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's probably not going to affect the content that the millions puts out. Um, uh, it, it can make some kind of additional splash for PW um, or add something to their, you know, revenue um, to be able to sell ads to publishers on a publication that faces readers. But I, I think it's a nothing. Yeah, it, it, nothing in this way that it doesn't really change the landscape. That, yes, that kind of a yeah. nothing, right? Like mm -hmm, the millions right. matters and Publishers Weekly matters. Yeah, and but and I guess I'll say like go ahead. D just to steamroll you. Yeah, for that's a fine. Second. Go for it. I'm more than willing to be. Um, like, I think. Yeah, I'm glad that the millions is going to continue existing, and also like I think the stance that we both tend to take when a publication or any business is acquired is like good for you. Yeah. Like you have done what you need to do. Like you've made a good decision for yourself and for your business. Um, and. Uh, if this is the right choice for the millions, I'm glad that they found a home. Um, it would be a real bummer, I think, to see an OG publication like this um, shutter after 15 years. There are people who like this is one of their destinations. It is one of their communities. And it's always sad to see one of those go away. So for those reasons, I'm glad to see it continue. And you were sort of tar talking around it and through it, but it was a literary site in the capital L literary. I mean, their quote in yes. About the Millions is the Times, New York Times, the Times, you can mm -hmm. say that, says <laughs> the indispensable literary site. And I think maybe for a while that was true. If you were looking for literary fiction, I think LitHub now is the, if you had to pick one, you know, they, they just, because they're run by a publisher, they have bigger names, blah, blah, blah. They also, mm -hmm. you know, they, LitHub does some of the modern internet stuff that the millions just never did. They, the millions, as far as I can tell, doesn't have a newsletter, doesn't have an email list. They don't have a podcast. Yeah. I mean, with, where LitHub does. Um, and Max, for better or worse, has stuck to the guns as like, this is an internet website and we, what we produce is text. But I think like the all, which was, you know, the all was to the internet as the millions was to the bookish internet, right? Like outsized mm -hmm. influence, but also they weren't as interested in, in running a business as they were in having a website, which are two different things. But the longer you can be a business, yeah, the longer well, you get to run your website. That's just how it works. And that's one great way to get like indie cred on the internet is to not want to turn yeah. your thing into a business. And I do think that that has contributed to some of this outsized credibility that the millions gets like and I mean, we're book riot. So of sure. course we're talking about our own perspective. Like, I think we should just be uh, frank about mm -hmm. this because everyone knows this is what we're talking about. Like we've always been a business and we've always been upfront about the fact that this is a business and there's no separating book riot from a, a literary site that's run as a business. No. Um, so we don't have that. Like we, we can't get like that. Well, we will never be able to access like that corner of independent credibility um, of being able to say like, we haven't tarnished our art with commerce. Yeah. And it's, it's tough too, because I think it's easier to start something and from the outside, know you're going to run out of business. I think it would be hard if this was your, if millions was your site and you ran it with a certain, I don't know, mm -hmm. idea of what the site is in mind 
you, you kind of boiled yourself, like little by little, yeah. no and no and no, and suddenly you're way behind, and the internet is different, and the demands are different. I, I can imagine this being a very difficult. There's no right moment to shift gears and to say this is going to be more a commercial product. And if it's not, it's very difficult to do something like this. The millions, to, there's a million editors. They do big projects. These recommended readings, like they've got big names on their mm-hmm. contributing editor stat, like Garth Risk Hallberg, uh, Chigozio Bioma, like uh, uh, Emily St. John Mandel wrote for them, Ian Lip- I mean, these are people with major book deals that have won major awards. One of the reasons they have the cachet that they do is they, that Max has sourced really interesting people to do really interesting content for them um, for literary pieces over time. Mm-hmm. But it's, if, it's hard. There's this book I read recently that said, Profit Equals Sanity. And I think it's very, <laughs> I think there's something to that. Like, mm-hmm. if you can run at a profit, you can be more sane if you're trying to get things from people and you don't pay very much or you don't pay, you're not paying your own bills. You're trying to keep up, but it's also not the thing you're doing that I'm, I'm shocked that it's a, it's a real testament to the endurance. It's been 15 years um, of doing it that way. It's tough. Now, you know, it'd be interesting to see, will, you know, some pieces that run on the millions end up in the publisher's weekly website. Are they going to cross promote? Like, the the Publishers Weekly is an interesting case, you know, thinking about it as a product. They do, you know, I subscribe to Publishers Weekly. What do I subscribe to? Well, I like to look at the the Nielsen top 20s for various things without paying the, the extortionary price you have to do to get <laughs> um, the Nielsen stuff. You read the reviews, you see what's starred, and then there's a couple of, you know, they do some... Um, you know, they do some reporting, industry reporting. It's pretty light on the whole, but they don't have features too often. They'll do a profile or something. They could... They could they could use the content sourcing that the millions does and have it appear there cross promotion. I'm not sure what else. Yeah. Like are banner is they going to sell packages of millions? I guess that's real inside baseball that yeah. no one cares about. And besides, I think us. it will be. You know, now that we're now that you were saying that, I was thinking about like several years ago, shelf awareness, which has always been industry facing, launched right. shelf awareness for readers to do the same thing mm-hmm. um, to be able to like to reach readers, but really to reach readers in, ser- in service of selling ads to publishers that reach readers. Um, not, nothing wrong with that. That's what we do. Um, I'm not judging it at all. Um, But it's kind of interesting that Publishers Weekly waited this long to make that same decision of like, oh, wait, wait, there's more advertising dollars we could maybe go after. Yeah. My guess, and I have no inside information, my guess is someone who was a full-timer at Publishers Weekly also wrote for The Millions. And it sounds Mm -hmm. like that person, I don't have the name in front of me, I'm sorry, I'll put the link in the show notes to the the original story and then the follow-up vulture piece we're about to sink our teeth into a little bit. Um, (laughs) But my guess is, and maybe this is my... um, my Kahneman error brain coming in of wanting to find a story that fits it. I'm guessing that it was, it was for whatever reason it was known that the millions was up for grabs. And Mm -hmm. because of that connection, published weekly. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take a shot at it. That's my guess. Um, now, and it's worth noting that the purchase price is undisclosed. undisclosed. And Hey, I would love for it to be acquired for a lot of money just because, you know, whatever my guess is years of work. Yes, man. Yeah. That's my guess. Um, Let's just say I'm guessing the purchase price of any was not in the millions. It was more in the thousands um, mm-hmm. to do it that way. But it'll be interesting what happens to it as we, as we all do. Um, now, what is something I think is the, the reaction? Again, it's one piece, so it's hard to know. But there's a piece in Vulture um, basically saying the millions was the last great indie book blog, and it was dead. Uh, or sorry, the headline is that the millions will live on, but the indie book blog is dead. Basically saying this marks the end of some epoch in some unit of time, which was the era of 
the indie book blog, uh, so to speak. I think there's, I'm not as mad at this article as maybe I could be at some point. I think what's interesting is how this is being framed and, and in part and parcel of some of the larger conversations and phenomena that are going on in there around media, especially digital media, let alone books. Um, but this is basically saying, I don't know. I, I mean, it's saying that this was, this was, there's nothing else like this anymore. And that's sad, notable. What else? I think in a way they're right. This person, uh, sorry, what's a cat Rosen? Cat Rosenfield. Rosenfield. I think in a way they're right, but in a larger way they're dead wrong. The way they're right, so, I think, is and I'm, uh, Rebecca's chomping at the bit. Which is the way they're right <laughs> is I think the the era that was marked by the elegant variation and bookslet by Jessica Crispin and the reading ape and dead white guys. Some of those indie literary blogs that you know at the fullest expression that era is kind of over where the first generation of indie book blogs doesn't really exist anymore. If you think of it from a literary point of view, the thing that gets wrong though, is that there are so many interesting things going on still in the book blogosphere and and forget about YouTube, put that to the side for a second that aren't about capital L literary coverage genre, women's fiction, romance, sci-fi, fantasy, YA, there's still a lot of really interesting stuff going on out there. And the same thing that gave the million sort of an outsized influence based on like the number of people actually reading it contributes to this kind of piece, which is a, a myopia about what it means to be a quote unquote book blog. They, they don't or see even a, what it is exactly. Yeah. Or even a book person. Yes, exactly. Like I, man, I have so much salt for this piece or like you were, we were talking mm-hmm. about it before the show and you were like, save the tea. So the tea is still hot. <laughs> like my tea is going to be hot about this for a while and not for the obvious reasons that like, like Book Riot exceeds in size, the millions by a couple like by a couple multiplications of well, that and, size. and Publishers best... Weekly too, if we want to be yes, salty. Yes, and about Publishers <laughs> Week, yeah, right, and Publishers Weekly too. But like, you know what? I'm secure in yes, that position. Right. Like, I don't care no. that Kat Rosenfeld thinks that the millions is more important. I do care that this is a huge disservice to readers and a huge and like demonstrably untrue mischaracterization mm-hmm. of what's happening on the bookish internet. Like forget the word literary capital L or not. Like we've said over and over, and I think it's more true with every year that there's never been as good of a time to be a, a book person on the internet. And it's probably true within any industry that people are passionate about the product of that industry. It's probably also never been better to be like a music person because, or, you know, a movie person, the number of voices, the diversity of the voices, the variety of the communities that you can access to meet people who are interested in the same things you are, or to discover new things are like the internet has made these just like almost unfathomably bigger mm. um, and, and more various. And like the more people who can open up their internet browser and find something that enriches their reading life, the better. And The Millions serves a really narrow definition Mm -hmm. of that. And it's fine. Like you're allowed to do a narrow thing. Uh, But the statement that this means the indie book blog is dead 
is just factually yeah. untrue. Or as Amanda said this morning, it's fake news. Like Book Riot is independent. Um, if you take the definition of independent as not no, not owned by anyone else, mm-hmm. like indie has this connotation of like scrappy and not a business and whatever. But like indi- sticking it to the man, right? Like the right, biggest definition like, of indie I can think of is sticking it to the man. Somehow, but like, right? but like definitionally independent. Book Riot is independent. Smart bitches, trashy books is a huge romance mm-hmm. blog. Um, with a huge and passionate community around it, they run independently. Um, the book smugglers run independently. There are just, and, and that's like just the... Just the, like three off the top of your head, right? Right, off the top of my head that have large, active readerships. There are probably more like independent, like individual people running book blogs now than ever have. Yeah. I lost the ability to keep track of all of them years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they just started, they have multiplied. And I think that's wonderful. Like the internet should be so big and so various that nobody can keep track of what all the options available to them are, that nobody can read all the book sites, that no one could like listen to all the songs. You know, like I, I think this is wonderful. Um, and it's a huge disservice to readers to make a statement like, well, the independent book blog is dead because this one thing has gone. Like if it were the last of something, like, I don't know if we sold, to some big entity and smart bitches sold to someone and the book smugglers and all the other like sort of big book blogs Mm -hmm. sold and were owned by other entities sure make this statement and talk about what it means like that would be interesting and worth discussion if like if it were so expensive or difficult to run a publication that you had to be acquired and everyone Mm -hmm. found themselves in that situation like that's a universe that we could have a conversation about, but that's not the universe that we're in. And the reaction to this, especially in this one vulture piece to the millions being acquired, I think is telling about like sort of the vestiges of snobbery um, in the literary community online. There's one line in here about like how the millions retained the indie credibility of a passion project run by industry outsiders. Mm. Like you just listed names of best-selling authors. Um, No one who has actually like been involved in the millions um, could honestly say that all these people were outsiders. Many of them have book deals. Maybe they were outsiders at the beginning in 2003. They were just people writing about books that they cared about. But but it did not last long. I've been on panels at industry events with Max McGee. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's so hard because I think there's a version of this piece that is a lot more interesting than it is, which is about how hard it is to run a passion project for a yes. long time. I think that's true. Like mm-hmm. the people who still run a site about a hobby, a passion, an interest, an expertise that doesn't meaningfully contribute to their making their monthly nut is a real thing. Um, I think that the internet allowed the professionalization of the book internet is the opposite side of this coin, which is people like us. Modern Mrs. Darcy does very well, like smart bitches, trashy books. They do a Mm -hmm. lot of interesting stuff that you can't do for too long if you can't support it somehow. And not paying your writers, not paying all your writers and getting the indie cred, I think is one of the biggest canards we've been sold about Mm indiness because as I said, profit equals sanity. Um, you can pay people fairly. You can continue it forever running on something other than the amount of adrenaline or passion that someone wanting to write for a site runs on. Th- that only runs out for so long. Like, I think when Nicole and Daniel shut down the toast and they talked about 
what it would take to keep it going, they said, we don't want to do this. Right. I thought it was so refreshing to hear that, mm-hmm. you know, we could try to turn this into a business, but we don't want to. And that's fine. Totally. That's totally fine. But there's something about like, there's something about this floating signifier of indie that makes me a little nuts just because indie sort of then becomes something that you can attach whatever meaning you want to. Because well, Amanda was tweeting, I was like, well, Book Riot's mm-hmm. not indie because it's so huge. Okay, so you have to be small and you can't make money off of it and you have to be an outsider. It sounds to me like you're a failed business. Like you put all those things together, that all equals you're going to go out of business at some point. Like to sustain something, ultimately in the long run, it has to make money and be able to support the people working on it, especially if it's more than just one person working on Saturday nights. That you can go on for a long time. But you look at the staff writing and contributor writer list for the millions, and there are a lot of people on there. That was a Herculean effort to put together. And I'm not surprised they couldn't do it. Um, in their current model, and that Max or whoever was running over there decided they didn't want to, wasn't their expertise, totally get. Um, But I think that's not about the internet. That's just about how these things go. Like Tin House Magazine Mm -hmm. shut down there. Like in the history of literature, presses shut down. Literary magazines shut down. These passion projects shut down. It's not the internet. It's just the way that economics work. And you could talk to me, capitalism, bad, and blah, blah, blah. I'm not really ready for that conversation this particular moment. Um, but it is too bad that there was a chance to say, you know, this particular site is gone. And I think there's right. This era of site is gone. But mm-hmm. to not see what is still there and, and thriving, forget about us. We're not, I, don't, I wouldn't even put us in the same categories. Frankly, I wouldn't. Or Lit Hub. We're a different no. thing. No, um, we are different You can call us a book blog. I don't care. I don't know if we are. It really, that label doesn't really matter to me. But to look at what you would call a book blog, like this, 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 this Smart Spicious Trashy Books, I think is a great example. It's so in the blind spot of the millions and vulture at this moment that mm-hmm. it's sort of, it, it calls into question the credibility of the whole piece when, really is what Yes. Happens. And I think that blind spot is really like that blind spot is the core problem with this piece, but this piece is not the only problem. This yeah. piece is a symptom That's of right. a problem of a particular, very problematic way of thinking about it's an incomplete way of thinking about the literary internet. It's limiting and I think it's Mm -hmm. self-serving to think about the literary internet as capital L literary as like, well, if the millions can't keep being the millions, then all of the literary internet is gone. It values reading literary fiction and only literary fiction. It values a certain kind of long form analytical writing one way. It values basically one way of engaging with a book. Um, And I think publications like this have had a hard time because the the internet has grown beyond that. Like mm-hmm. the, the internet, like that was one way to start. Like when the internet started, it was just online, I think, online reproductions of the kind of writing and art that were being made in print publications. And that's no longer the case. Yeah. Um, the way that we talk about books, the way that music people talk about music has changed. And like the way that you need to like sort of the breadth of content that you need to prove to present the variety of reader that you need to entice in order to continue to like to grow and do interesting things has to be bigger. And the millions chose not to go in that direction. And I think that choice is, um, I think I think that was intentional. I think they had a very clear idea of what kind of coverage of books they wanted to do. And again, you're absolutely entitled to have a perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was limiting in terms of how it could be a business if they wanted it 
to be and limiting in terms like a very small percentage of readers read literary fiction and this is the great lie it's the great publishing (laughs) like dirty secret right that like you gotta sell six million copies of the da vinci code in order to justify the um the mid list yeah the mid list right um and the literary fiction that not very many people read so these like litfic might be the books that tend to get a lot of attention from critics but they are not the books that get a lot of readers attention so if you want a lot of readers you've got to talk about a bunch of different kinds of books um there is a quote from another critic who was not connected with the millions but who was interviewed about the significance of the millions um laura miller in this vulture piece and she says that it it there's some big point to sort of reflect the appetite of a bunch of intelligent readers the kind of readerliness of the millions, I just feel like that's not really in fashion anymore. The idea that you would just write about a book because you liked it and that would be good enough. Like the whole bookish internet. That's, that's what it all is. is is people writing about books they like and hoping that other people who like those books or who are interested will find them. So that exists and will continue to exist like beyond the millions. If Book Riot closed tomorrow, that would still exist on the internet. People would still be doing this thing. It's this first sentence about the appetite of a bunch of intelligent readers that I think is really Mm. telling. Um, And the definition of what an intelligent reader is, is very narrow here. Like to be an intelligent reader um, in Kat Rosenfeld's and in Laura Miller's quote, you need to care about the kinds of books mm-hmm. um, that the millions cared about. And and caring about other kinds of books would cheapen your taste. Um, and like, I think, again, to hang a lantern on it, we have created Book Riot in direct response to some of these mm-hmm. ideas that, um, that any genre you care about is a genre that's interesting. Um, if you have an interesting thing to say about a book, other people will be interested in that as well. And that caring about romance passionately is just as valid and important a way to be a reader as caring about the classics um, or as caring about literary fiction. And f- this is what I have a lot of salt for um but i think it's just it rude mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just rude um to classify like the vast majority of readers who don't read literary fiction or primarily literary fiction as unintelligent by stating that like when the millions goes away and people aren't talking so much about literary fiction we'll be done having a bunch of intelligent readers um it's just very insulting well the whole piece depends upon the unstated warrant being that the millions is going away because some and it's not going well, away. It's, it's going away, a, and it's going away because of C, and that C being something like the interest isn't there anymore. We don't know what the millions traffic was. Is it down over the last six years, or is it just Max is tired? If Max is just tired, then this this piece is completely null, right? If he's just tired, mm-hmm. then the app, people are still reading, people are still writing. Nothing has really changed. So. The war. This is again. This is an old teaching thing. Like, what's the thing that has to be true for your argument to be true? For this argument to be true, that the indie book blog is dead, and all these quotes that support it means that something about the appetite of readers or the interest of people writing for the millions or people reading for millions is different. When really, it's just as possible that Max, is like, you know what? I've done this for fifteen years. I'm done. Okay, what does that mean? I'm guessing if Max's life is anything like mine, fifteen years means a lot has changed in my. <laughs> as opposed to 15 years ago. So it'd be, it'd be interesting to hear, like, I hope at some point he'll give an interview or say something about it or, or some other people will say, like, we needed a shot of cash infusion. There was a bunch of debt. Like, is it really the case where it was in trouble, capital T, whatever that means? Or was it, you know, I've been making this thing, we've been making this thing for 15 years. 
we need to be not the ones necessarily in charge for making sure the lights are on Monday to Sunday mm-hmm. because the internet's never closed. And I think, you know, it's easy for Laura Miller, who's a professional book critic, gets paid to say, boy, it's too bad people won't write and read for free anymore. Like, that's kind of disingenuous <laughs> to me. Like, I feel like well, uh, I'm not yeah, sure. It is. And, you know, like, in other parts of the culture, we're seeing lots of like pretty volatile reactions yeah. to like to the fact that like one dominant or hegemonic voice is not the only voice anymore. Right. Um, and the dinosaurs in those cases respond pretty like vociferously. They don't like that there are other voices. Mm-hmm. They feel threatened that there are other voices, that there are other ways of engaging. And I don't think that that has to be the case. I don't think the introduction of a new way of engaging with books necessarily invalidates an older way of doing it. I don't think that Book Riot's way of doing book coverage invalidates the millions approach. Um, They served a different kind of reader. Um, But like a literary critic has something invested in only validating one of those approaches. Mm -hmm. Um, And someone who doesn't want to see other kinds of reading that they don't engage in validated um, is also invested in propping that up. And I just I, I just don't understand the point. Like, there are demonstrably untrue statements in this piece on Vulture. Um, like, who did who signed off on it being done this way? Yeah, who edited this piece? Like, very often, it's, it's easy to, like, and I do have you know, a lot of tea for the writer of the piece. I don't think that she did good work here. Um, if I, on, and also, I think if I were Max McGee, I wouldn't love this presentation either. Oh, that's interesting. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't really, I don't think it doesn't honor what the millions did in an honorable way. Like you've spent 15 years of your life working on this. If someone wrote a piece about this, like if we sold Book Riot and someone wrote this kind of piece, I would feel like, oh, you missed the point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm on, I'm projecting, I don't know Max well enough to guess, but I don't think that this really places the the real like the significance of the millions in its true context and looks at like the millions was a jumping off point you if you don't have the first if you don't have the first generation then the people doing the next thing don't have shoulders to stand on and um you know ideas on how to iterate and i think the millions could have grown more if they had been interested in growing more by engaging with some of the ideas that the next generations presented um, and adapting to the way that the literary internet had changed. Um, But they chose not to. And that's fine. But I don't think this piece really does them credit. Like it doesn't do them service of what the site has meant and what the community that gathers there has done. Because the whole thing is based on a statement that's not true. There, There is another way of writing this piece, which is the millions being acquired by Publish Weekly signifies the apotheosis of book blogging or like the right because now it's part mm-hmm. of a mainstream publication you see what the kinds of the kinds of contents for example the new york times book section is doing it looks a lot like book blogging like the kinds of mm-hmm. content they do you have lit hub you have bustle you have budfees books like in a lot of ways it's not that the that book blogging was killed it's that its dna got injected into larger entities and not in not not discounting ours uh, among those things, right? Like the very idea of book, right? Was let's take the passion of book blogging and try to make a business out of it. Th- that was the idea. I ran an independent, an independent literary website, <laughs> but like when Clint and I were putting this, I was like, it can't be a literary site. It can't be my taste and have, and be a business. It just can't. I knew that from the very beginning before I knew anything else. I knew that had to be the case, but there is a way that like a 15 year passion project that Max put together and a lot of people that helped and volunteered and some of them were paid and some of them weren't. Um, and a lot of readers who cared about the site, 
got it to the place where Publishers Weekly wants to take it on and run it on an ongoing basis. That's a way mm-hmm. different way of framing the story. And, and it gives them credit for 15 yeah, years of hard and, and work. And maybe Max didn't want to talk about it. That's his right. I mean, I sure. would sure like to hear it. But it, is, but it does leave a lot of space to sort of spin the story. Rather than a handing of a baton, it's like you're dragging the jalopy into the yeah, garage. It, like, yeah, this piece really serves nobody but Vulture and the clicks that the clickbait <laughs> headline is going to get them. Like, it doesn't serve readers. You're not serving people who care about books if you tell them that book blogging is dead. Like, no. there and, and also they know you're lying. Like, anyone with access to Google can learn in five seconds that there are still a jillion places to learn about books on the internet, and also that the millions will continue to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the, the millions is not dead is a critical piece. Yeah. Of, yeah, the that's, that is here? interesting. I mean, again, it's just it's just a it's just a way that there's a lack of information, so you can spin it, you know, and not be completely mm-hmm. immediately um, discredited for it. It's a disappointing piece, and I, I think again, maybe people aren't interested in this kind of book. Blo- I mean, the book blogosphere, frankly, has never gotten the kind of attention from people even interested in interested books that it feels like it should have gotten, like. It's mm-hmm. a fat. I've always been fascinated, clearly. But even when I was starting out, and I didn't know much about it, it's amazing. Like how many people are engaged in different ways, and I, I would throw people who are serious about their Goodreads profile into this same mix. Like if you write a mm-hmm. lot of reviews on your Goodreads profile, it's a kind of microblogging, not dissimilar from running your own Tumblr. It's just platform dependent. Like it, it's fascinating to think about the changes, and maybe there will be a great book or study. And I'm sure there are people working on dissertations. I've done dissertations. I've read about like tooth, you know, 2003, that's as good as time as any, you could start with the millions forward. Um, I'm not sure did the elegant variation of some of those places. Early, I don't know where you, where you would start. Um, but the flowering of alternate ways of talking about books that has happened in the last 20 years, let's say, is really unprecedented. And, you know, as an, an amateur and mm-hmm. somewhat professional literary historian, unprecedented democratization of public discourse about books and that the millions being acquired is the end of something is true. But I think it's sort of the end of the beginning of something, frankly, Mm. I think it's the end of the beginning of talking about books on the internet. If that's, if we're going to have to talk about the millions is the end, this is is the end of something. That's what it is. Um, It's the end of the beginning of something. And the millions was there at the beginning and things have happened. Things are going on, going on to happen. But, it's hard for me to say like this is the end of anything else. And maybe I'm motivated because we run a business that's related to books and we're not disconnected from some of the issues and players and ad dollars and attention that goes in with this. Um, but I'm glad that the millions are still around. I wish, I wish we had a better way of thinking about credibility and merit that was disassociated from the fraught basket of suppositions that go into the idea of indie. <laughs> The fraught basket is definitely our show yeah. title. <laughs> Do you think we've talked enough about that? Does anyone else? I mean, I, think... I don't know if you guys care. I mean, we're really into this because this is close <laughs> to home for us. And it doesn't get talked to. I, I've always been interested. Like, this is this is going to come across as narcissistic. I'm always surprised that people aren't calling me up for interviews about stuff. Isn't that weird? Mm. Like, <laughs> like I, I, don't, I don't care about getting my name into stuff. But, like, I don't know. It's weird. Like, you know, I think it's strange. I just don't understand. Like, it, maybe people don't understand or is, what we do, but well, like, it is weird. This, I think 
this is that weird thing about like what I think perception too, right? Like that the millions was perceived for 15 years as a bunch of outsiders, Mm -hmm. even though they have New York Times bestselling writers writing for them Um, and definitely close ties and relationships with publishers. That's how those writers end up on that site. Like Max McGee, no stranger to a publicist. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, and neither are we. Again, that's not a judgment statement. (laughs) Like there's... Well, you don't have these people writing for him without like getting out there. Like you, right. You can't do this kind of thing without having close relationships with people who work in publishing and whose jobs it is to promote books. Um, And like none of us can do our jobs Mm -hmm. without those relationships but book riot i think like has always been perceived as an outsider like we did 11.7 unique visitors last year but i think we're always going to be perceived in in some corners as like the like scrappy new kids on the block um and it's weird that you can have those you can put up those kinds of numbers and be perceived as an outsider or as a new kid or not have credibility for size um where and and like we are absolutely like we don't work in the industry but in terms of knowing things about the industry in terms of having connections to people in publishing relationships with writers and publicists like there's no there is no arguing that we are not insiders i think in that way yeah um now we are now we are sure yeah yeah we are we weren't when we started max mcgee wasn't when he started but we certainly are now um and so the perception like uh, that this is my take like the reason that no one was like book riot is the biggest independent book blog let's find out what they think about this is that like we still don't pop up in people's minds as uh, as like big yeah or maybe we pop up as big or too but not big as, i don't know like it's weird yeah. yeah or maybe we pop up as too big but not inside enough mm-hmm. i don't know well i mean in a, in a lot of ways we are the the bizarro version of the millions insofar as we're conceived as a business. We talk about multiple genres. We, you know, we paid from the beginning, even though it was very little as rev share and so on and so forth. We overtly develop new products. We overtly have advertising. It, it is interesting to think about it in those terms. And mm. I think whatever it is that we don't take enough of the boxes for indie, I think to be indie, like there's a sort of I think to be indie in a, in a popular parlance, I'd be interested to hear other people's responses, a podcast at bookwrite.com. Like, what does it mean to be indie? But you can't have the kind of overt com- uh, um, monetization strategy that we do mm-hmm. and be indie. Yeah, I think that's the, the, dis- the dividing line in my mind. I think so too. Like, we're independent, but corporate. Right. That's right. Y- yeah. To be independent, you have to, you have to be non-corporate. And frankly, that model as a, as a survival strategy from what I've seen on the internet, doesn't work out too great. And sites that I really wish still around were meaningfully non-corporate and they don't exist anymore. Yeah. And I think that the toast is the perfect example yeah. there that they grew really quickly. They had a, a very, they had a large and passionate mm-hmm. audience. They had a really strong community though. The people who read the toast were very tied to each other and to the work that the site was putting out. And then Nicole and Daniel said openly like, we would have to commercialize yeah, right. in a like very we would have to corporatize basically to keep going and we're not willing to do that mm-hmm. and um i feel like if you can't if the toast can't do it you know like who could have yeah um, right and they found other outlets because they can be they can like you know daniel does a podcast for slater at least did of late i'm not sure and and had a book no he still does short, yeah. book of short stories and nicole does different stuff like they can still do the things they want to do they just don't have to have their, they don't have to have their own website to do it anymore which is great right. you know um and a lot of people like you know mark and and maude who ran the the websites that really influenced me 
they're doing other stuff. Their website mm-hmm. was a thing they did for a while, and they can sort of follow what they're actually passionate about doing. There is a point, too, I'm sure, where Max's passion for writing about books actually had to become a passion for managing people writing about books, yeah. which is a completely right. different thing, as I can tell you. Um, <laughs> so it's... Uh, it's Whoops. Oh, Siri's trying to talk to me. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Siri. Thanks so much for that. That was really helpful. Um, so anyway, that's probably more than anyone wants to hear. Uh, you can hear more uh, in uh, Tea for the Bookish Internet and Rebecca and I's new podcast. That Every month, every week, <laughs> we're going to do an hour venting about things. I don't know. I think, I do think it's interesting. The, the, you know, what are the big trends in sort of bookish internet thing is kind of where I went to in this, in, in, in my mind here. And I think that there's there was space for there was and is space for commercial smaller publications to exist is the story. Mm-hmm. Um us in there, Lit Hub is in there, uh Smart Bitches, Trashy Books. Um there's YouTubers that make that do very well um yeah. as well. That and that some people use it for launching pads, like some people have their book blog and they now work for us. Or they work for another police, or they got a book deal, or something else like that. Um, that that kind of flattening out is very interesting. I also think I would love to read a piece about how traditional publications have changed their book coverage to mimic, or respond to, or borrow from tropes and structures of book blogging. Because mm-hmm. um, that's really how you can you can just see the kinds of things that get published in, oh, yeah. in larger like outlets. Yeah, the New York Times book coverage has listicles yeah, sometimes. They do. Like there's no better example than that. Yeah. It's a it's a fascinating time and I think we're still in the middle of it. I, I again oh, I think I, so I'm too. still bullish on books on the internet, uh if that's not clear. Yeah, yeah. I stand bullish on books on the yeah. internet. Um yeah, I stand by and hope that we get to stand by for many years, like in an ongoing, mm-hmm. growing way that there's never been a better time to be a person who cares about books online. Oh, I don't know if I do. I, I will say this. There was a little point when social media was non-algorithmized where mm. you could get rocket fuel. And we did. We, I mean, we weren't there from the very beginning for Twitter and Facebook. But if you were there for the first three years of the growth of Twitter and Facebook, look at the millions Twitter following account. They were there from the beginning and got a lot early. And, you know, oh, so yeah, there, was yeah, a, yeah. there was a moment where it was a lot easier. Now... Publishing well, to tools. be to be running a business, but if yes. you're just like a book person, like I think it's great. Now. Oh yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, there, yeah. there's some, there's definitely, um, there's different opportunities. I'll say that. Like yeah. YouTube yeah. didn't exist yeah. when we were book blogging. I mean, it did, but it wasn't right. BookTube, and BookTube is a whole different animal. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do another sponsor and talk okay. about something, all anything right. else that's yes. not that. Our next sponsor this week is The Red Address Book by Sophia Lundberg. Uh, when Doris was a girl, she was given an address book by her father, and ever since, she has carefully documented everyone she met and loved throughout the years. Looking through the little book now, 96-year-old Doris sees the many crossed-out names of people long gone and is struck by the urge to put pen to paper. In writing down the stories of her colorful past, working as a maid in Sweden, modeling in Paris during the 30s, fleeing to Manhattan at the dawn of the Second World War, can she help her grandniece Jenny, haunted by a difficult childhood, unlock the secrets of their family and finally look to the future? And whatever became of Alan, the love of Doris's life. Uh, This book is going to be published in 28 territories. That's huge. Uh, It's perfect for book clubs. It's similar to other heartwarming novels that feature quirky older protagonists. And I'm on the record is thinking we don't get nearly enough fiction Mm. about older people, um, including a man called Ova, the Little Paris Bookshop, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, and the Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, to name a few. And um, 
there's this cute, cute and I think significant movement attached to it called the Call Your Grandmother Movement. Mm. Many readers around the world have contacted the author, Sophia Lundberg, to tell her how inspired after they mm. after reading the book they were to call their own grandmothers and grandfathers and other elderly relatives and hear their stories, um, which I think is just really lovely. Uh, so again, this is The Red Address Book by Sophia Lundberg. It is available wherever books are sold, and we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Well, we better do a couple of follow-up things. We got to get out of here. Um, <laughs> this this got we. I was you know really uh, underestimating. You were, you were warm. You were nice and I toasty put, coming in. I put two minutes of tea in the <laughs> yeah, agenda. You're only wrong that by was... a factor of twenty. It's okay. <laughs> two orders of magnitude is not that bad as a guesstimate. Uh, Barnes and Noble holiday sales results. Um, fascinating to see. Barnes and Noble reported comparable store sales increased four percent between Black Friday and New Year's Day. Uh, and 1.3% for the nine-week holiday period ending December 29, 2018, making the best comp sales performance for the company in several years. The company also increased promotional offers, which increased markdowns as well as sales. The company said that due to increased advertising expenditure and increased promotional activity, earnings guidance may be reduced by as much as 10%. Uh... It must have been those signs they put in the windows about how trustworthy they were. Uh, well, you spend more advertising, you get more business, but then it reduces your <laughs> quarterly earnings by 10% guidance. That's rough. It's rough. Yeah. Yeah. Let's also say that, um, what's, what do we compare this to? Like, what, what's our fair? I mean, I guess it's better than down. Mm. It, yeah. It's better than bad, but is it good? That's a, that's a way of thinking about this. <laughs> No, I'm serious, it's than, right? It's better no, than no, bad, but right. good. Be, yeah, no. I don't, it's better than bad. Like, I guess it's better than bad. It's what period. we want to compare it to, which I guess is total retail sales. Like, what benchmark can we use? Like, the external principle mm-hmm. being, mm-hmm. what was it for holiday retail shopping, consumer in general? In general yeah. Um, for we, don't the, we don't know. Not yet, at least. We'll find out. Maybe if we, maybe if we, I'll look for something for about um, brick and mortar. Well, does it say? Comp store sales. So this is physical sales. I don't say anything about the website. You know, if if um, physical retail was up six percent this year, well, then Barnes Noble underreported mm-hmm. the industry average, which is not great. Uh, oh, did you see? Oh my God, I, I didn't even see the banner headline <laughs> on the the press release. Is still this Reputation Institute makes Bar- names Barnes Noble number one most reputable <gasps> retailer? Exclamation point. I didn't see that. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, oh, one thing that got, you know, I was going to throw this at you uh, while we're on Barnes & Noble. One thing that got cut from my interview with Mike Shatskin was I asked him, like, if you're at Barnes & Noble, what do you do? Oh. Well, the answer he gave is in there, but he had a second answer that didn't get mm. put in there. He's like, my other idea that I've pitched to them is a Barnes & Noble section in other stores, which is, oh. you know, people still think and trust Barnes & Noble as a bookseller, but they're mm-hmm. not going to bookseller stores. But what if... Um, like Target's book section was the Barnes and Noble section, Barnes and Noble, oh. which I thought was a really interesting idea. The, I, and I was thinking department stores, probably yeah. because of Indigo. But like, if you were in Macy's, yeah. and there was a Barnes and Noble book corner. Mm-hmm. Huh. 
-hmm. kind of the flip side of Indigo, right? Like bringing the department store into the bookstore. Why don't you bring the bookstore into the department store? Right. It's interesting. Because he said, you know what? Barnes & Noble does very well. And one of the reasons they made their bonus supply chain and relationship with publishers and purchasing decisions. Like they have good inventory management, supply chain, stuff that consumers like us don't really pay attention to. If you're Macy's, you can imagine like, well, maybe they would like to have a book section of department stores, but then you have to build out a whole expertise about supply chain and knowing how things work and discounting and the whole what's going to sell, blah, blah, blah. Well, how about Barnes & Noble says, why don't you let us come in? We'll give you a cut of the sales, but we'll make your stores more interesting. Put it, put it right next to the Starbucks that's in a bunch of Macy's you can go into right now. And there's the Barnes & Noble book section. I thought, I'm not sure it would work, but I'd love to see it fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be interesting. Be interesting. Anyway, that, I thought it would, that would be a good experiment to have. If you had to fail, that's a more interesting. Better than way Barnes and Noble Kitchen. I think I would pick yeah, that above Barnes and Noble be, Kitchen. You know, right? Like, there's that old trope about startups, like fail faster. Yes. And I want Barnes and Noble to just fail interestinger. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, and that one wouldn't cost a jillion dollars. You're not building out about a whole bunch of stores. Like, uh, you know, it would be f- like I don't even know the best places to put it in. Like the retail equivalent of Barnes and Noble. That's the other thing. And thinking about it, it's like Indigo's gone upscale. And Barnes & Noble is neither upscale nor is it downscale because it's not books a million or half price books. It's like, it's not even like Walmart. Is it? It's not yeah. even, it's like weirdly, I don't know. It's, it's it in is a weirdly no man's like its land. own thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No man or woman's land. I don't even know. Yeah, I guess like Pier 1 Imports is the closest I can get. Does that even exist anymore? Like it's it kind of between up and down. Like is it fancy or not? It's kind of a weird middle place Um, yeah and like pier one i think is a perfect analogy because pier one like wants to be fancy yeah but is it actually because like william sonoma is too fancy for barnes and noble right right? walmart not fancy enough not fancy enough not fancy enough tg maxx kohl's not fancy enough i don't think target doesn't need help selling books i don't think target that's one that maybe that might be the the one that got away a little bit for barnes and noble yeah i think that barnes and noble is probably somewhere between like dillard's and macy's i think macy's is i think macy's dillard nordstrom's too fancy nordstrom is too fancy um fascinating if you've got a good comp (laughs) <laughs> this is a this is a crowd this is a wisdom the crowds moment for sure if you can think of a pier one is this the leader is, we'll see if you can beat pier one yeah. for a comp for Barnes and Noble um, we'll give you a shout out what a weird fun Bed Bath and Beyond thought experiment oh hmm. well if Bed Bath Books and Beyond <laughs> the, the, the four B's <laughs> all right um, let's do one more story you get to pick them oh boy you know what let's just stay with bad job publishing okay. <laughs> Years ago on this podcast, early in this mm-hmm. podcast life, we talked about uh, an, an author named Kathleen Hale. Oh, who had I admitted, knew you were going to pick this. I know. We just have to yeah. talk about it. She had admitted to stalking a Goodreads user who gave her a bad review. I believe at the time that we were talking about a HuffPost article, either about it or that she wrote, like she's written essays. Oh, it was The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a piece in The Guardian um, about all of this. Um, the book was called No One Else Can Have You. It came out in early 2014. And then in the back half of 2014, a Goodreads user um, wrote an, uh, what, you know, a one, she wrote a one star review, this Goodreads user. Um, Kathleen Hale admitted to, quote, engaging in light stalking to find out who this person was. Um, she blamed the Goodreads user um, for get for other people's like she blames the fact that this person had written a negative review for other people's refusals to read or buy her book. Um, she then got invited by a book club to promote her book. 
And they, the book club asked, like, who would you like to have interview you? I guess maybe over Skype. And she gave the name of this Goodreads user so that she could have basically have someone track down that person's address, ostensibly to send giveaway copies. Um, and then she admits to driving to the person's house. Like, she travels, she rents a car, and she drives to the blogger's home with a plan to leave a book called A Short Guide to a Happy Life on the person's doorstep. They never had a face-to-face -face encounter. Like, this is, there is no way to justify uh. this behavior. Patently, 100%, bad, wrong, also stalking is illegal. Um don't do this. You don't do this. And this was a huge thing on the bookish huge. internet when it happened. And it should have been. Mm -hmm. Like, The Guardian also let her publish this piece that was very uncritical about her own behavior. Like, haha, here's this crazy thing that I did. Aren't authors weird? Um, which also just no. Like, no all the way around. But now she has a book deal, a collection of essays that are called Kathleen Hale is a Crazy Stalker. And one of the pieces in the book is about her doing this thing. And I just have like just bad job publishing. That's so bad. I mean, for giving her money to tell this story. This is no. Mm, there's a version of this where an essay that's about her culpability and contrition might be interesting. But the flip, the, how flippant the title is. And also the publisher's copy for the book begins this. Kathleen Hale has been known to stalk people from time to time. Not recently, of course, and only online, which is factually false since they showed up at their house. Well, mm -hmm. mostly, there's, there's, it's so glib. It's like joking about what, the, what she yeah. did. And that's the part I don't get. Like, you, people and, can do bad things and talk about it and write about it and you come back to it. But like, this is like jokingly making money off this thing, which was super disturbing and wrong. I, I, don't, yeah. I, don't, see, I don't see it as all. I can't find the right angle on this. No, it's unjustifiable. Like, well, it's a great story and people are interested in it. And so we can sell books like and our job is to sell books. Like, I'm sure that if the publisher had to give some statement about it, that, you know, that is. Oh, actually, no, Grove Press yes. did give a statement. We stand by our publication. There are six essays in this collection which have been revised and expanded since online publication, including the essay Catfish, which is the one about this. We would encourage people to read the collection before passing sure. judgment. You know what I don't need to no. read is someone's justification of stalking in order to have judgment about whether stalking is okay and turning stalking into entertainment is unacceptable and this is also a case where the gender stuff is really interesting Super because interesting. if a male oh. author wrote a piece about stalking a goodreads reviewer we would all be also very justifiably up in arms about mm -hmm. it and we should be very up in arms about the existence of this yeah um i feel so bad for the person that was stalked. Oh my God! Right. I mean, the, the, this piece. I think this piece does a good job. I should, we we slagged on the the vulture piece. I think this piece does a very nice mm -hmm. job of contextualizing this, and it doesn't yes. use that reviewer's name intentionally and says, you know, here's right. the legal definition of so so good job. Let me shout out the right name. Um, this is a piece in Bustle, and uh, also an interesting by Christian Wilson, and also an interesting entree in the world of book coverage. Um, I think I, maybe I mentioned Bustle earlier, but they did a really nice job contextualizing this. Um, it's important to note the accounting events given ab above comes from Kathleen Hale herself. Very nice job, Bustle, uh, putting together. Mm -hmm. you're, you're totally right that if this this was a man, it would be, I mean, it would be different. It would be loaded differently. But also, yes. this woman who was stalked, 
boy, like, I, feel, I just feel terrible. I just feel yeah, terrible. Yeah, the, the automatic response we should have to this, no matter the gender of the stalker, is the automatic response we would have to it if the author had been a man. Yeah. Like, that's the one that we should generalize to everybody. If you get a bad review for your book and you stalk the person who reviewed your book, what you have done is bad and wrong, and there should probably be legal action taken against you, and you should definitely not get a book deal mm-hmm. to make money to tell that story. Yeah, a good working definition of stalking is a course of conduct directed at a specific person that could cause a reasonable person to feel fear. Following you and showing up wherever you are, sending unwanted gifts, letters, cards, emails, finding about by you public restaurant online search services, hiring investigators, going through your garbage, or contacting friends. Wow. Mm-hmm. I, you know, legal definition aside, you know, this is more of a, I know it when I see itself. She even calls it herself a stalker, playing it for laughs and like trying to disarm not. it by making a joke out of it. It's so tone deaf. It's so, it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, and I'm sad we're talking about it and let's stop. Yes. That's our show. Um, podcast at bookriot.com. I especially, you know, if you have thoughts about internet book stuff, probably you got more than you wanted out of us this week, but you know what? Them's the break. This is what we do for a living. Um, comps for Barnes and Noble. What would be the best store you can think of? For there be a Barnes and Noble Prevents or a Barnes and Noble Mini Store or bon, uh, Barnes and Noble, I don't even know what you call it, um, section in another store. We can give them some ideas that they won't take. Uh, you can find show notes to this and all the episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Go check out the most recent version of Annotated. It's called The Very Model of a Modern Major Bookstore. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can find the link at show notes there, also annotated on iTunes. Also, I'm posting stuff to uh, Annotated's Instagram. Um, I did, I've done more or less. For the last one with Edna Ferber, I didn't have as much stuff. I've got a lot of stuff about bookstores that's coming over the next month. Check that out. Link in the show notes or Annotated FM on Instagram. We'll be back next week. Maybe we'll come in a little less hot. <laughs> Talk to you guys later. <laughs>